coming up on this week's podcast. As we try to figure out the perfect will of God, I'll tell you, if we're fooling around with somebody who is not our wife, we're not going to find it. We're not going to find the perfect will of God. If we're not supporting our family, once again, these are very basic issues, we're not going to find the will of God because we're not obeying in the basic, you know, things. Stay tuned for more. And welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically-based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Carl Nevia with today's message. We're going to be continuing today with our discussion from Romans, uh, starting with uh, chapter uh, 12, verses 1 and 2. And uh, I would actually not like to begin right there this morning, but to kind of set the stage a little bit by uh, reviewing the story of the Samaritan woman or the woman by the well, uh, whichever you happen to know it by. And this is from uh, John chapter 4. And in verse uh, 3 or so, it says that uh, Jesus uh, left uh, Judea and went to, let me see if we're, this is actually going to work this morning. Hey, it did work. Uh, this is my uh, necessary piece of art that's actually a drawing by Michelangelo of Jesus and the woman at the well, obviously very old, uh, but I felt like it's, I have to do that once I got started doing uh, <laughs> classical artwork. Uh, but anyway, we've got a, a map here of, of Israel with uh, Judea down here uh, in the bottom side. That's where Bethlehem is, Jerusalem is, and so on. And Jesus left that area to go back to Galilee, which, of course, he was uh, raised up in Nazareth, which is up near the Sea of Galilee, up in that uh, northern area. And to get there, he had to go through uh, Samaria. And he stops at a little town uh, it's actually on this map called Sychar, uh, right about there, kind of in a mountainous area. And he stops by the town well, and a woman comes out to him, and he begins to speak to her uh, about, he asks, actually asks her to get some water for him, which is very surprising to her because the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And uh, many times when we think about Samaritans, what do we think of? They're good, right? Samaritans are good. You know, that's why we've got a story about the good Samaritan. But in reality, in general, the Samaritans weren't so good. Uh, The Samaritans, if you're not aware of it, were actually a group of imports brought to this area of Israel by the king of Assyria. When, in fact, the northern kingdom of Israel, which was, was fighting with the southern kingdom, Israel versus Judah, Uh, They were fighting one another. They, um, uh, the king of Assyria, removed the northern kingdom of Israel from this whole area and hauled them off uh, in exile. And for whatever reason, he decided that it would still benefit his kingdom, his ownings, if he then went out to Babylon and a few other towns and he imported people into this area so that it was still inhabited. 
So all these Samaritan people were actually folks that the king of Assyria hauled in uh, to help fill out the population. And after a period of time, when they were uh, getting eaten by lions, the king of Assyria uh, concluded that the reason this was happening was because they did not know how to worship the Israelite God. So he picked out a priest who had been brought with the Israelites into exile. This is a Jewish priest. And he sent them back into this area to teach these people how to worship. How to worship the God of Israel. Because obviously that God was in charge in that area and there were all kinds of bad things happening uh, when the Israelite people were pulled out. So in fact, here we have this group of people, the Samaritans, who were implants to Israel, taught by a Jewish priest, this is how you worship the local God here. Now, 2 Kings tells us that, in fact, the Samaritans, although they picked up many of these practices of worship, continued worshiping according to the practices of whatever homeland they came from. And that included burning of their children as part of the sacrifice. So the Samaritans weren't good in a general class, They were this kind of odd group of people pulled into Israel to become pretend Jews and taught by a priest how to worship, and yet they continued with their very practices, even, even to the burning of children. So as Jesus addresses this woman, it's very interesting because she decides to debate with him about how to worship. She raises this issue about, well, our fathers teach us we should worship in this mountain, and yours say we should be doing it in Jerusalem. So she tries to get into this debate over worship. And I thought to myself, as we were preparing these messages, actually, when we first came up with a title for this series, it was actually Worship. Um, And interestingly enough, we've gotten into the idea uh, of the living sacrifice. But as we started thinking about worship, I thought, wouldn't it be great to do something on a how-to, a how-to-worship? Then I started thinking to myself, we got all kinds of different views about what that is. We have people here that love contemporary worship. We have other people that say, man, it's just too loud. You know, we have some people that say, well... It's teaching the Bible, you know, is the heart of worship. And others that say, you know, I really would appreciate a little bit of liturgy so I knew what was going to happen each week and I could focus on God and on meditating on those concepts and so on, not so much what's happening now. You know, some people, like I said, like it loud. Other people like it much, much softer. I actually was taught uh, to worship many years ago in a charismatic church that met in a basement. And I learned uh, to worship essentially by singing choruses out of the King James Bible over and over and over and over and over again. (laughs) Many of them one line long, but they were straight out of the King James Bible where if there was a visitor next to you, You didn't have to point up on the screen. You just showed them, here's the Bible, and this is what it says. And that's how I learned to worship. And I, I, you know, it was was exciting to me, and I really actually appreciated 
doing them over and over and over and over again because for me, it helped me actually commit them to memory, both the scripture and the songs. And that enabled me, when I knew the songs, I could close my eyes and I could worship the Lord. And it didn't matter if kids were doing handsprings over the seats. I, I didn't notice. It also allowed me just to focus on God and in many ways not even worry about the words. And anybody who ever sits near me knows that I often don't sing the same words that everybody else is singing. Uh, Oddly enough, I find it very hard to follow the screen uh, and, and worship at the same time. But we all have these different you know, ways of doing things. I actually was raised in an area where dancing was common as part of the service. Um, in fact, we probably shouldn't even called it a service, but it was common. And it wasn't like Jewish line dancing, anything kind of organized, you know. This was what we called the Davidsonville two-step. Uh, that's how we learned to dance. Very uh, original, very free, very whatever, but that was the environment I, I learned to, to worship in. So I thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be interesting to kind of have a discussion that was a how-to on worship? And that's kind of as Justin and I were talking about preparations. That's sort of what I was gearing up for. And then as I continued to read this scripture in John, Jesus says, uh, when she brings up this issue about the how-to, He says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Of course, they were imports, and this is not their native belief. We worship what we do know, for the salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. So it hit me as I was reading that, that there were probably a lot more fundamental uh, ideas and issues than teaching whether, you know, it's better to raise your hands. I mean, I love to raise my hands. Is it a good idea to shout? when people might get stirred up by your shouting, do you need to bow down? And I think he was saying to me, those things at some point, Carl, there's probably a good time to talk about them. But at this point, let's, let's focus on the fundamental concept of what worship is. So today, I am not going to demonstrate the Davidsonville two-step. <laughs> You're going to have to come back another time, uh, and I will, uh, I will do that uh, for you. And uh, you'll be fascinated, I am sure. Uh, some, uh, there's a few others here that have done that. So, uh, oops, can I go backward now? Uh-huh. Backward? There we go. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Who would like to read this this morning? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen. Amen. Now, this this piece of scripture, these two verses, are actually combined together essentially in in a paragraph. And the breakout of the scripture 
doesn't necessarily follow how the numbers are inserted by verse and, or even by chapter, but there are, in fact, breaks in the Scripture. And these two are directly linked together. So you, you really need to read them together uh, and understand that in the end, here we're getting to this point of knowing the pleasing and perfect will of God In order to get there, there's these steps along the way about having our mind renewed, uh, not conforming to the pattern of the world, uh, the spiritual act of worship, which back to the beginning is offering our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. So it all starts there. Offering our bodies as a living sacrifice is, in fact, that spiritual service of worship. It is, in fact, spirit and truth in doing that. I believe that that's what Jesus was referring to when he spoke to the Samaritan woman. Uh, And ultimately, then you work through from that point to ultimately get to a place where we can know this pleasing and perfect will of God. Now, obviously, all of us would like to know that. Uh, We would like to know what God's will is for us. We've got very difficult decisions oftentimes to make about, well, where are we headed for a career? What am I going to do about school? Um, you know, my, who's going to be my future spouse? All these types of things are very challenging uh, decisions that we have to make. So knowing the will of God is certainly an important uh, component then of walking with him. I mean, some decisions are really complicated, A good example here we've been experiencing recently is which is it better to do, to support a pro-Western dictator or democracy in a country that's just as likely to turn into either anarchy or a uh, pro-Islamic republic? Which is that? I'm glad I wasn't the president uh, now nor in the past uh, years when they were wrestling with us. Very difficult decision. Wouldn't it be great in working through that to know the pleasing and perfect will of God? But once again, that's in this process that we work uh, through in Romans 12, uh, beginning with the living sacrifice. Now, if we could turn over to to Hebrews uh, chapter 9, and uh, I may ask a few more of you uh, to read here. I'm not going to put it up on the screen, so you have to read it at, uh, at your seats. But could I have somebody read uh, Hebrews chapter 9? Now the first covenant had regulations for worship, and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table and its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry. But only the high priest entered the room, the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people who had committed an ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. 
they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations, applying until the time of the new order. Okay, so in the book of Hebrews, the writer here describes the Old Testament practice of worship. And if we look throughout the Old Testament, we will find worship practiced by various peoples in slightly different ways, but there are some things that are common uh, to all of them. First, Cain and Abel, we see very early in the book of Genesis, one sacrifices uh, some of the fruit of the land that he has grown, that's Cain, and Abel, who sacrifices his firstborn uh, lamb. Uh, Abel's sacrifice was, was accepted by God. Cain's didn't, didn't sit so well. Obviously, that led to some bad things between them. Uh, later, we see uh, Abraham uh, going to Melchizedek, uh, and when he meets with Melchizedek, who is this uh, high priest, uh, Melchizedek blesses him with wine and bread and praises the Lord when Abraham is there with him. Interesting enough, it gives us this picture of the bread and the wine okay, that we now know uh, not only became a symbol to the Jewish people in, uh, uh, in the Passover, but later becomes a symbol to us in the communion and essentially points to a deeper, deeper truth uh, that is the body and blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus as the, as the Lamb of God. So we see back in those days, Abraham, uh, Abraham was living about 1,900 years before Christ. He's meeting with Melchizedek. Now he's also from time to time setting up altars and worshiping, it says he's worshiping God. He's bowing down and worshiping God with these altars. Uh, later, about 1,400 years before Christ comes along, uh, the Lord establishes the tabernacle worship through uh, Moses and Aaron in the book of Deuteronomy. He lays out this system of worship, all the how-tos, all the, the instructions as to how you go about worship. And there was a, a various courts in the tabernacle. There was the Holy of Holies where the high priest would go in once a year and offer this blood sacrifice there were sacrifices done around this place, but that, that was, in essence, the worship. wasn't we came, we sang a few songs, we listened to some good teaching. When you said, I was going to worship, that meant you were going somewhere, in this case Jerusalem or to where the tabernacle was, to sacrifice. Whether it was for uh, some sin you knew you had committed or ultimately once a year by the high priest, sacrificing and pouring this blood out uh, for the sins of the people. But Hebrews talks about all this practice. Now later, about 900 and some uh, years before Christ, David institutes some of the musical components of worship, bringing in musicians and, and so on. But essentially, I mean, if you go back to Cain and Abel, we're talking five, 6,000 years or something, but certainly among the Jewish people, we have like 1,900 years of practice leading up to Jesus coming. Okay, and we often think, you know, somebody's going to give us a little bit of heads up about something happening. You know, if they give us a week advance notice, we're, we're kind of happy with that. Okay, but the Lord showed through these sacrifices 1,900 years earlier a picture of the sacrifice of the perfect lamb, 
He then instituted 1,400 years earlier the tabernacle practice, which was more specific and pulled out more concepts. Uh, And then David, once again, building the temple, uh, embedding these practices into their standard form of worship, all for the purpose of showing us a type of a deeper truth. All, you know, to think of that, 1,900 years of practice in order to understand when Jesus came that this was it. So when they talked about worship, and this isn't just the Jews. I mean, people all over the world sacrificed. That was what they understood worship of God to be. You took an animal or you took whatever, and you went out and you sacrificed that. And the Jewish practice was just as much into that, maybe more developed, but certainly it was uh, very specific, and that's how you followed, that's how you worshiped. But as we go on in this scripture, it then says in verse 11, it says, when Jesus came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter in by the means of blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God? Just like it says, offer yourself a living, offer yourself your body as a living sacrifice, it says here that Jesus offered himself. Now, all those other practices that we read about, we talked about, none of those practices uh, involved a lamb or a pigeon or anything coming and saying, I want to be sacrificed. This is the first case we have of someone actually offering themselves Okay, and by that, let me see if this works. No, wrong way. Can I go back the other way? Hmm? No? There we go. I'm in the right place. Good. You're going to help me through this, Justin. I'm... Okay. By that, we see that Jesus is himself is the first living sacrifice by the fact that he offered himself. Okay, he became our example. Let me, let me continue. Uh, that he... Uh, through the eternal spirit, offered himself unblemished to God that cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that, they, so that we may uh, serve the living God. Okay, this is our foundation. This is our beginning point. I'm going to go down a few verses, uh, down to verse 19. It says, when Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water and scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in his ceremonies. And in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 
It is necessary then that the copies of the heavenly things, that's all these pictures, 1,900 years of pictures that God had given us, that the copies of the heavenly things uh, to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven himself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. So once again, the difference of the living sacrifice from the traditional sacrifice is Jesus offered himself. It says then, uh, Christ would have uh, had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all and at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now starting in chapter 10, it says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because is it impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins? It says in verse 5, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here am I. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. So, in fact, he was saying here, and Justin, can we switch to the next one? Okay, he was saying here that his coming in obedience to do the will of God was, in fact, this living sacrifice, this service of worship. So he's connecting here that the living sacrifice is essentially one of saying, I've come to do your will, O God. Not my will, but your will be done, as he said in Gethsemane. That's why he came. That was his act of worship. Now, ultimately, Jesus' act of sacrifice actually led to his uh, killing on the cross. But the fact that he offered himself was something he did as a living sacrifice. He followed the will of God to the end of his course that God had set for him. So when we begin to start thinking about worship, I think it's important for us to keep in mind that all the discussion, all the thinking we can do about what's the best way to worship. We can raise our hands, we can dance, we can pray quietly, we can do all these things. God is saying to us that the essence of worship ultimately is looking at him and saying, uh, Lord, your will, not mine and ourselves coming to a place of obedience to the will of God. That's the real worship. 
And in fact, in the book of Isaiah, the Lord says that the people come to me with their lips and their mouths saying great things, but their hearts are not in it. But in fact, it says that they're basically practicing the rules of men in their worship. So it's always important as we discuss worship, as we think about, well, how can I grow as a, as a worshiper? And uh, you know, whether it's 24-7 worship and so on, the essential characteristic in worship is beginning with obedience. And that's not obedience as in, uh, I really don't want to do that, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay? Uh, when, you know, some of us have had children, some of them have managed to grow up and uh, survived our, our training. Uh, but how many of you like it when you tell one of your children to do something and the next thing they do is they kick a chair or they throw something or they grumble? Or whatever? That's, that's not obedience, I think, in the spiritual, biblical concept. That's, that's compliance. Okay? But obedience is something that we, in our relationship with God and our relationship with our parents, enter into joyfully because we want to. Now, as I said, I have four, four kids, and they're all here today, so uh, uh, they obeyed me for once in their lives. And, uh, no. uh, but our kids, our kids are really they're great kids. They've grown up, as I said. They're now leading their own lives. Uh, but there were times in their lives when they were practitioners of the art of passive resistance, When I knew, if I told Eric that he needed to study his Spanish vocabulary in order to pass his Spanish final, or I told him, you know, he was going to need to get his his college uh, applications prepared at an early time, and he he said, yes, Dad, I knew there was something else going on there. And very often, uh, those things were not going to happen. Now, that wasn't obedience. Now, he's learned... And he's here today, so uh, that's, that's an improvement. But obedience, uh, obedience is, in fact, that joyful following, that joyful uh, saying, Lord, it's your will I want to do, not living my own way. And that's the picture that Jesus gives here through the teaching of all those 1,900 years of worship training to then present himself as the living sacrifice bowing to the will of the Father and saying, Lord, your will, not mine, be done. Let's go to the next one, Justin. So our living sacrifice is, in fact, that life commitment that we make to be obedient to God, to agree with his will and not our will. You know, you can boil it down to specific cases and so on, but I want to encourage you to think, at least as a beginning point, that the basic decision to follow the will of God and say, I want to do what you want for me, Lord, is the beginning of worship. Because it's the beginning of obedience. And that's, that is worship. So if I come in singing at the top of my lungs, okay, that's not really the true heart of worship. The true heart of worship is whether when I walk out the door, I obey what God wants me to do. Now, let's, um, if we go to the next one, Justin, please. Okay, so I want to point out that the basic place to start, and this 
miraculously gets back to Romans uh, 12, uh, uh, verse 2, the basic place to start is by making that commitment not to be conformed to the world's way. Remember in worship, what was the world's way? They did all kinds of detestable things, the scripture says, even the burning of their own children. And that the Jews created a new way of worship that was, that was holy unto God, that was according to his pattern, and so on. Uh, that is our desire, not to be conformed to the world's way of doing things. Now, once again, you can put that in the context of worship, as in singing, raising hands, when you come, uh, all those different things, where you go. But in reality, the issue here is that worship is about obedience, and the world's way is disobedience. I mean, that's the basics. I mean, the, the, the fact is that the world is off doing its own thing. But our job is to make those decisions not to be conformed. Now, let, let me just mention a little bit about what I think that is in some way. And if we go back to thinking about the Samaritan woman, she starts this debate with Jesus about where to worship. Now, why did she do that? What had Jesus just said to her? He told her, can you please go get your husband? And she said, you know, she starts, you know, playing with this, trying to kind of, and he said, well, she, she answers uh, him truthfully. And let me just go back to that real quick so I don't, I don't miss those words exactly. He says, she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. And she says, uh, sir, I can see you're a prophet. Uh, now, let's change the subject quickly, and let's get into a debate on where we should be worshiping. So the funny thing is here, even though we normally think of Jesus pointing that out, of course, as a miraculous act based on who he is, the neat thing about it, in my view, is what Jesus was pointing out to this woman was, even before she got into this debate about how you worship, he was pointing out to her, her life was not in obedience to God. And it's just, as we try to figure out the perfect will of God, I'll tell you, if we're fooling around with somebody who is not our wife, we're not going to find it. We're not going to find the perfect will of God. If we're not supporting our family, once again, these are very basic issues, we're not going to find the will of God because we're not obeying in the basic you know, things. If you want to uh, live with your boyfriend. You know, I'm not trying to be, be difficult here, but if we're trying to understand the basic heart of worship, it doesn't matter if you come on time on Sunday morning, which I love to do. It doesn't matter if you raise your hands or dance. If you're not living in obedience to God, it just doesn't matter. You know, if we're mistreating our children doesn't matter if we come and sing loud. Okay, the heart of worship is being a living sacrifice, saying, Lord, with all of my life, with all of my breath, I give myself to be obedient to you. Amen. Amen. Can we go to the last one here, Justin?
I think there was one more. And that as we do that, as we do that, God begins to transform us. He begins to renew all the messed up things that are up there in our brain. And we begin not only to understand the basics of obedience, but to be able to grow in obedience. To be able to grow in our worship of him by taking those initial steps, by saying, Lord, I see it in your scripture. The way I'm living is not right. I choose today to obey what you've said for me to do and start in a new direction. That's, that's the beginning of obedience. That's the beginning of worship. That's the beginning of the living sacrifice. So think on these things. Jesus was the example for us. He chose willingly, joyfully, to do God's will. Uh, the outward exercises of worship are insignificant compared to that decision as to whether we're going to do the will of God or not. And us offering ourselves in a life commitment uh, to the Lord, to obedience to the Lord, is in fact that spiritual service of worship. For all of us, you know, you may not be a believer. That's okay. I was not a believer many, many years ago. Uh, But God's saying he wants us to come to him. He wants us to obey him. And if there's a decision you need to make, even today, to do that, I'd encourage you to do that because that is what worship is. In fact, you could come after all the singing's done. You know, if that's not in your heart to do, um, that's what worship is about. That's what the living sacrifice is. And I believe that as we do that, God will teach us to obey. He will continue to renew our minds and he will bring us closer and closer to that perfect will for all those difficult decisions, difficult places to be. But we've got to start at that beginning point. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching focused on the Jewish roots of the faith and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes, and you'll get the next podcast in your sleep. New Hope Chapel.